and welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate your support. My name is Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. As you have always got to learn on Healthcare Unfiltered, we believe in dialogue. We believe in debates civil debates and civil discourse. And with that in mind, I like to always bring various colleagues and guests on the show to discuss topics that may be controversial or may not be well known to all of us. A few weeks ago, I did tape a podcast on the ketogenic diet. At the time, I hosted Ethan Weiss and Kevin Bass on my podcast, and we talked about the ketogenic diet and so on. And this episode actually generated a lot of buzz Many listeners were very interested. Many viewers on my YouTube channel were also very interested in the dialogue. And uh, after that episode, I got to know a wonderful colleague, Dave Feldman, who is actually an engineer by uh, uh, training. And he has a lot of interest in lipids, cholesterol, and had a model called the lipid energy model. You can actually know a lot about Dave by going to cholesterolcode.com, cholesterolcode.com, and to go also on citizensciencefoundation.org. What I wanted to uh, do is to invite Dave Feldman on the show to really talk about his model and how it fits within the ketogenic diet that we talked about. The idea is what to do with the abnormalities of the cholesterol numbers, specifically LDL, in people who go on ketogenic diet. What do we actually do with this information? Do these people require therapy, not therapy? And really, what is the clinical significant, uh, significance of what we are observing? I wanted to have Dave speak on the show for the entire hour, so you really get to know a little bit more about this uh, model that he has uh, and then I promise you that I will have Dave Feldman and Ethan Weiss on the podcast debating the idea of the lipid energy model and what we are talking about. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast episode and get to learn about Dave, what he is doing, and about the model that he has. Uh, I also would like to plug the show by asking you to watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, refer colleagues, and don't forget to hit the like button. Do the same for the podcast. Find the podcast on all the podcast outlets, subscribe to it, refer colleagues to it, rate the podcast, and write a brief review. Without further ado, Dave Feldman on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, it is really such a pleasure uh, of mine to have Dave Feldman on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Um, Dave and I have not really met in person yet. Hopefully we will, but we have corresponded on social media. I have followed his uh, work and got to know really more of uh, what he does over the past couple of months. So I appreciate the opportunity. Dave, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, I know we've talked a lot on, on, on Twitter and on social media, so... Just uh, seeing you, uh, even though by Zoom, is, is always a pleasure. And I just want to make sure we start by making sure that folks who are listening know a little bit about who you are, what you do, and um, just whatever you want to share uh, about yourself personally and professionally. 
Yes. Thank you so much, Chatty. And thank you for having me on. Uh, I, I do want to fit in just real quick. Your podcast has quickly become kind of one of my favorites. I, Whenever I'm exercising, I try to fit in a variety of different podcasts. And I know one sticking out when I can't listen to just one or two. I have to listen to five, six, seven. <laughs> I think I think I've definitely had more than a half dozen of the episodes. And I may even reference a few of them in the course of our conversation. So yes, quick quick about me. I'm actually a senior software engineer and entrepreneur. I really kind of spent a lot of my life on what you'd consider to be a standard American diet. And only about six years ago, a little over six years ago, did I actually get into the low-carb diet. And that's what kind of led me on to the scientific journey. I'm sure you're a little bit more familiar with. So how, how does a soft where engineer become interested in, in diet and nutrition and cholesterol and things like, was it like serendipity became by chance? Because, you know, I mean, you, you, you obviously are very, very well versed and knowledgeable in what we're going to talk about when it comes to lipids, cholesterol, and so on. It's not something I would think an engineer becomes interested in. How did that happen? Well, in a word, I would say fear. <laughs> so <laughs> Basically, what happened was after I'd gone on a ketogenic diet, both my dad and my sister got somewhat inspired to go on it as well. Part of why I went on it was actually that I had an A1C of 6.1 for two years in a row. And again, this is while I was on the standard American diet, even after I thought that I'd done enough course correcting. Well, you know, A1C is associated with diabetes and diabetes runs rampant on my dad's side of the family. So I was like, well, I, I want to dodge type two. What can I do to accomplish that? And I found on a lot of forums, what was known then is uh, LCHF, low carb, high fat. Keto hadn't yet become super big by that point. And low carb, high fat sounded crazy to me at first, bringing down the carbs, bringing up fat, especially saturated fat sounds nuts. And I remember then asking questions about cholesterol, which they knew hardly anything about. A lot of people were saying, well, most people don't really see that much of a change in their cholesterol levels. So I go on the diet. I inspire my dad and my sister who likewise go on the diet. All of us were having a great time. We're feeling great. And they end up getting their blood tests a little bit before I do at about the six month mark. And even though I told them there's a chance their cholesterol might go up, it went up just marginally for both of them. And so I was feeling comforted. I get mine at around seven months into the diet, but mine skyrockets. My, L, my total cholesterol went to something like 330. My LDL went to something like 230. And bear in mind that it used to be at around 130. So it going up by 100 milligrams per deciliter, it just paralyzed me with fear. And at that point, I was thinking, should I just abandon the diet? Should I? But being an engineer, I'm sure you know some engineers, we tend to do this. We tend to say, hey, let's at least try to understand the mechanisms behind it just to get some idea of what might be going on. And I was excited because what I found was that actually the system that moves around cholesterol in your body, the lipid system, in many ways resembles a network, the, the same kind of networks that I work on. And I don't want to get too technical, but I'll just say that the, the things that move it around, the, the carrier proteins, in many ways, they're kind of like packets that you would see like uh, emails, for example, they have headers, which kind of tell the network where to take things. We have apolipoproteins that sit on these, these boats, these lipoproteins, things along those lines. 
I saw lots of corollaries with. And at that point, I became a lot more interested in seeing if I could figure out more about what's going on. You just were just going on a diet and to, to lose some weight and, and then you became on a journey. And how, how did you seek out, like, what was the methodology to, to better understand? Was it just you read, you did seminars? Like, what did you do to better understand? Uh, because usually what I try to do is I go to google.com. I presume you've done something a little bit more than google.com. Yes, I, it's, I was fortunate that it was 2015. And in 2015, there was a lot of available resources online. So I started with uh, Piratia. I'm sure you're familiar. He had something called the Straight Dope on Cholesterol, this series that kind of was a good introduction. And there was also Thomas Dayspring, who had a site, LecturePad, I think LecturePad.org. I think it's defunct now, but a lot of his lectures were on it. Those are a lot more dense and took a lot more learning to get up to speed. But a lot of these resources were available to learn about lipidology, the study of lipids and how the system works. And during that period of time where I was just scared out of my mind, I decided to do a second blood test, which was two weeks after the first one. And because I was so depressed at the time, my appetite went way down. And so I was just eating less overall. And therefore, because I was eating less and still ketogenic, still staying on a ketogenic diet, I knew I was having less saturated fat because I was just consuming less total. And I thought to myself, okay, well, if I'm just eating less as well as having less saturated fat, if it really is linked to how much I'm consuming fat, well, then I would expect the blood levels would drop. And instead, my total and LDL cholesterol went up another 100 milligrams per deciliter. Oh, wow. And I, and I contend to this day, I may be the only person who actually was kind of, they kind of sparked curiosity. I was almost more happy to see that than sad because immediately it occurred to me, Chatty, that there's just a lot more to this story than dietary fat and dietary cholesterol equals higher serum cholesterol. And when you tell, when you talk about ketogenic diet, just to be clear, you were saying low carbs and high fat, just for simplicity's sake, can you give an example of a day, and then we'll go into what you did, but just a day of um, what did you have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner when you were on that diet? So at least listeners can maybe, uh, I don't know, coral, you know, uh, relate to what, what you were eating. Sure. Breakfast would often be either eggs and bacon, or a lot of times I would have broccoli with butter. In fact, often I would have like a, a, like maybe, I don't know, a fifth of a stick of butter or something like that. That was at room temperatures. So it was kind of easy to uh, dip the broccoli into. For lunch, I, I would typically have things like cheeseburgers, but without the buns, usually it would just be the burger and the cheese. And kind of interestingly, I found it was very difficult for me to get off of ketchup, but of course, understandably ketchup is high in sugar. So for a while I was like, well, I'm keeping it to small amounts, just trying to dab it. So it was a huge victory when I was finally able to wean entirely off of it and have just burger patties and cheese alone. The same thing with getting say steak, I would eat a lot of salmon and lots of fish and generally just reduced all forms of starchy carbohydrates and uh, breads, things along those lines. And then there were a lot of times where you'd be at a restaurant 
and maybe everybody would be having say pizza and then I would just scrape off the pizza toppings and have those instead. But that's kind of the gist of it is, is effectively trying to understand every source of carbohydrates in your diet and then just trying to take them out. Thank God. Just uh, thinking about how you would eat the pizza, it's just a, it's just a buzzkill, my friend. I mean, it's like, you know, pizza is like, you know, I am. Okay. So now it's interesting because you were not eating well and the LDL and the cholesterol kept going up. So, so in your mind, I presume you, 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 you became more curious to try to figure out what's going on. Um, what did you do then? Well, so I then started tracking every single thing that I consumed and still do to this day. In fact, I'm kind of a little bit famous for this. I take pictures of everything I eat. It, again, because it's 2015 coming up until 2021, we have our phones with us at all times. And taking pictures is not a difficult thing. It, doesn't, it takes a very small amount of space on our phones. And if you want to, you can get a cloud account where you can sync that. And I like that because it creates a, an independent audit trail for everything I've consumed, which I have likewise coupled with more frequent blood tests. So for about the first eight blood draws of this journey, there's those first two that I just mentioned. Then there were an additional six. I was tracking my food every single uh, time, like, like every single day coming up to each of these blood tests. And I could then start discerning this pattern. And just as I described now, where when I was consuming less fat and less calories overall, we saw that my LDL went up, we would see an inverse pattern in the opposite direction as well. I could consume more fat while still being on a ketogenic diet and see my total and LDL drop down. And after I'd done that eight times, I took this to a conference, the first low carb conference I attended, which then was low carb veil brought this up to doctors there and so forth. And they didn't know what to make of it. Uh, I was starting to talk about the beginnings of what I'll, I'll refer to later in this podcast as the energy model. And it, it just seemed foreign to everybody. It just, it's, we know, we don't normally think of cholesterol as being relevant to this larger lipid metabolism or to think of it in this network context as I was, but then I decided to go ahead and do a very ambitious experiment. I decided to, for seven days in a row, well, technically five days in a row with uh, one day on either side of a weekend, I ate to a food plan to intentionally induce changes in my total and LDL cholesterol to see if it followed. In other words, could I eat less for some days, eat more for other days and see that pattern follow throughout that week? And the short answer is yes, absolutely. It showed a very tight correlation, a very, very impressive Pearson, very impressive uh, R squared. And then after that, probably the coup de gras is for my, my last data marker that really put it into perspective. I stepped on the gas, which is to say I consumed a huge amount of dietary fat, then took a blood test to see if it would actually drop my LDL levels as low as they've been for all of the tests that I've done. And it did, which again, would seem unintuitive, right? Consuming a whole lot of saturated fat in order to drive down your LDL from where its baseline, its higher baseline is, but that's exactly what happened. It is counterintuitive, like you said, right? I mean, you're consuming fat and it's actually bringing down your lipids. What did, what did that mean to you when you first saw that? Um, because I, I presume you were not expecting it or are you expecting? Well, I started to get to where I expected it more, but I 
this was the beginnings of what I'm going to refer to as the energy model. And I now feel as though I understand it better, almost end to end. There's a lot more that I understand now in the whole process for which it can make sense. And I can try to give you sort of a layperson, sort of a 50,000 foot view of the lipid energy model. And bear with me because there are some things in which I'm going to kind of oversimplify, but no, no, that's fine. But the lipid energy model, so to preface that, is the model that, in your opinion, would explain the discrepancy between the diet and the cholesterol and so on. This is the theory behind why you observed what you observed, correct? Correct. In particular, in particular, high total and LDL cholesterol as observed in metabolically healthy low carbers. Can't wait to hear so, it. Go ahead. Okay, so here's the gist of it. I hear the term metabolism a lot. So let's break that down real quick. That's the, that's the constant relationship between the building up of things, anabolism, and the breaking down of things, catabolism. But in particular, usually you're discussing it in terms of uh, energy potential or fuel. So you're building up fuel when you're consuming food. And then between those times you're consuming food, you're breaking down and making that fuel available, right? right? Now, in the case of carbohydrates, you're converting those to glucose. And glucose can just go straight into the bloodstream. It can be made available to your cells pretty easily because the bloodstream is water-based. It's like, you know, you can right now put sugar into water and you'll find that it distributes easily. However, that's not the case with fat. If you are fueled much more by fat, then there's a problem because fat doesn't mix well with water. So you need something that carries it and your body makes proteins to carry fat in your bloodstream. The one that a lot of people don't know about is albumin. Albumin carries free fatty acids, but the one you do hear a lot about is ApoB, ApoB containing lipoproteins. It's a mouthful, but here's the gist of it. The gist of it is that there are these boats, if you will, that are very large that get synthesized in two places. One of them is in your gut. You just ate some food. I just, let's say I just this morning had a fatty meal. It put in my, and I know in my intestine, my uh, body was putting together these boats that packaged the fats from that meal. Not just the fat we're talking about for fuel, but also fat soluble vitamins. And what also comes standard is cholesterol. Cholesterol comes standard in those boats as well. And that came from my gut and it immediately started uh, putting away a lot of that fuel, not just for the, the tissues that needed it, but also for my fat cells. I'm definitely repleting my fat cells. I'm, I'm storing, I'm anabolism. I'm, I'm bringing up the stores of my fat. I right. should be, right? Right. Because after I stop eating, I'm going to be then drawing off of the fuel that I have stored. Okay. Conversely, there's this counter process to that, which is starting at the liver. The liver needs to likewise supply uh, the rest of my tissues especially if I'm on a fat-based diet with fat coming from storage. So the fat that gets released from my fat cells, a lot of it will get packaged up at the liver in this other kind of boat, which is called VLDL, uh, short for very low density lipoproteins. And those boats, those boats, a lot of them 
after they release that fat-based fuel, it will then remodel to a smaller version known as LDL. And I know you've heard of LDL. Certainly right. I have. Right, right, right. Usually we're talking about the cholesterol that's on board LDL. Well, again, cholesterol comes standard on very low density lipoproteins. Right. In fact, it's actually, it's actually structurally important for them to be synthesized and secreted properly. It, in a way, a good way of thinking of it is sort of think of uh, spare tires on cars. You know, it's, it's spare tires are going to come standard with cars, right? In that way, cholesterol comes standard with these carrier proteins, these lipoproteins that are carrying lipids around your body. So why this inversion pattern happens, or for that matter, this explains both. Why would my baseline level of, high, of LDL be higher? I think it's because I'm carrying around and trafficking more fat to use for my periphery, for my for the cells throughout my body. And, and likewise, if I'm consuming a lot of fat, well, then guess what? My, my, the fat that's coming in from my gut is counterbalancing the fat that would otherwise be coming out of my liver. So there's less of those boats that are needed. There's less VLDL and therefore there's less remodeled LDL. But it goes the other way too. You remember how earlier I mentioned I was just consuming less calories. Right. I was consuming less fat. What does that mean? That means I need to draw more off of my existing fat cells. Right. That means that there's going to be more VLDL in play and therefore more LDL that we would find in a blood test. Interesting. This is really interesting. I like how you explained it. I, I, it's, I'm, I, it's sinking in for me. Um, before we go further with this, Dave, is when you were seeing the numbers were going up, uh, as your seems like regards of what you're eating, did you uh, consider taking medications to talk to your doctor about like statins or anything else as you were seeing the numbers creeping up? Well, I have to be honest. I'm, I'm generally of the mind that if something can be fixed with lifestyle, with diet and lifestyle, that should be what's first considered. Given that I knew my LDL throughout my life had been in that 120, 130 range. I felt pretty confident that I could just abandon the ketogenic diet and even go back to the standard American diet if I needed to. But I didn't want to because I was feeling all of these great benefits from having gone keto. I'd lost 35 pounds. I was setting new personal records with my running. I was running at the time. I, there was just so many ways in which I felt these enormous health benefits that I really wanted to see if I could explore other ways of maybe making changes in between or something else if I felt that the high LDL was problematic. And that's when I started kind of putting a lot more effort into recognizing how this energy model could be applied back to the question of risk. How much did we have data on people who had lipid profiles that were similar to what I had? Because usually when you see higher LDL, you see it in combination with high triglycerides and high H or sorry and low HDL, a pattern known as atherogenic dyslipidemia, and that wasn't the case for me. I was seeing this other I often call it the triad, this low carb lipid triad, which is you have high LDL but you have it alongside a reverse of atherogenic dyslipidemia, high HDL and low triglycerides, and. In pursuing that data, I found that it typically was associated with lower cardiovascular disease risk, 
I think many people like some of your prior guests, such as Ethan Weiss, would point out, well, hold it, hold it. Even if that's the case on the limited data that we have, those people who have high HDL and triglycerides, but alongside low LDL would have a slightly lower cardiovascular risk association. And I think that's a fair point to bring up. But this gets back to sort of this larger question, which is you know, the magnitude question. Is there a larger magnitude of risk or a smaller magnitude, even for this level of which we don't know the answer yet? I mean, you're saying that the high HDL, I'm trying to follow the, it's, if it's high HDL and high LDL, the cardiovascular risk is low? Well, yes. In other words, there's, there, is, there are existing studies. They, ba they balance each other kind of thing? Well, and here's where it's going to get a little more nuanced. But let me back up a step first. Uh -huh. What I think a lot of people, including some of your prior guests, would say is that these are kind of mix and match in a way that, that risk factors can be kind of put together. You know, some, some are going to take you in the positive, some are going to take you in the negative and so forth. And I should say, Chatty, that I have a very nuanced perspective, particularly given this mechanistic explanation that I just gave, for which I feel lipid profiles are really more a consequence than they are a cause of disease. And in particular, where I'm driving toward is what is the health or illness that results in disrupted lipid metabolism, dysfunctional lipid metabolism, because I think that needs to be a, a part of this larger story. A part oh, of what no, we're I agree with you. It just, I, I still go back what, what I, I still think one of the most intriguing parts is when you mentioned how you did not eat and you had low appetite and I know you were just having a bad week or a couple of weeks. And I would have totally guessed you would have much lower numbers. I mean, I think that, that, that piece really threw me off because I don't know, we, we're always taught in medical school that one of the uh, hallmarks of nutrition, if you want to know if somebody is uh, nutritious, you have you check the albumin, pre-albumin, also cholesterol. So if somebody has very low cholesterol, it could be a sign of malnutrition um, and, and malnourishment. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit surprised by how you did not eat and, and all of that, and the numbers did not really could care less about what you, what your what your diet was. I don't know, unless there's like a lead time bias or something. Well, I do believe that there is something that you'll see within different time scales. So I think you're going to be more likely to see a pronounced increase in cholesterol, even when not, not in a ketogenic state. And there's lots of data that already is just, I mean, quite literally since the 50s, for which they've done fasting and in the case of fasting, saw a pronounced increase in cholesterol levels. And that's, that alone, I think, should have been a point in which that became a central focus to consider. Because, as you know, there are many populations for which fasting is very uh, normative. It's, it's something that's very common and integrated into the culture. And so you would expect if that, if we would see a likewise increase in cholesterol during those periods of time, that would add to this, this so-called LDL burden. And therefore, they should have higher overall cardiovascular risk, Right. But I, as of yet, I've not seen any evidence that suggests, uh, particularly those populations that engage more in fasting, especially intermittent fasting, uh, that we would see this higher level of risk. But that's an important question to ask. Yeah. 
Okay, so take us chronologically. Then what happened? Like, what did you start? I mean, like you took that model or that theory and and presented it, or you tried to prove it, or like what what happened then? Because I'm trying to better understand what was I don't know the medical community reaction to whatever you were proposing, and I don't know. Take us through what happened after that. Yes, so that happened in 2016. If we're going back to when I was first presenting it privately on my laptop, wandering around from doctor to doctor in the conference. In 2017 was kind of a breakout moment for me because I was actually invited to go ahead and present it at what was then Low Carb Breckenridge. At Low Carb Breckenridge, which is now sort of a precursor to Low Carb Denver, that was a point in which a lot of people could sort of see in the way that you're seeing it now, this, this concept behind the model sort of unfolding and kind of making a little bit more sense. And at that point, I ended up getting on the radar of a lot of people within the low carb community. And that helped in pushing the research forward a bit more. Now that said, I, this entire time for a good five, six years, this entire time, I've been very proactive about trying to reach out to cardiologists and lipidologists outside the low carb community, especially those who are researchers to say, hey, let's really look at low carbers who have high LDL in this context, because we don't normally get this sort of opportunity. Usually when you're trying to run an experiment, you're trying to get rid of other confounders. And if this energy model can help explain a scenario by which you would have high LDL, yet with other cardiovascular risk markers being more ideal, particularly with metabolic health, let's then measure it. Let's find out what's its association with risk, especially cardiovascular disease. And even so, that didn't end up really developing. Rather, I ended up getting more and more traction within the low-carb community. The hypothesis has since gained a lot more uh, interest, and there's a lot more people who sort of understand it and know it from within, but it's harder and harder. Well, I shouldn't say it's harder and harder. It's, it's getting a little bit easier, but it was hard to get it outside of the low carb community into many other doctors uh, that aren't as familiar with it. Do, do we know how often this happens? I mean, I'm just trying to think if I take a hundred people like yourself who go on a low carb, high fat diet, ketogenic diet, how, how do all of them end up having high LDL? Is this 50%, 10%? Do we even know how often this phenomena occurs? It, it has quite a lot to do, and I say this more confidently than ever, has quite a lot to do with your existing metabolic health, your level of leanness, and just how low carb you are. Existing, so, existing what? Uh, your existing metabolic health, uh -huh. how lean you are. So quite literally how much you know, lean mass to fat mass. Sure. The, the more lean mass you have versus fat mass, the, the higher your total in LDL and just how low carb you are. Those, those three have a substantial impact with the caveat that there are still other things that modulate it, such as uh, saturated fat versus mono and polyunsaturated fat versus fiber versus medication. All those things can further impact it. But those three in particular, I can change my LDL quite substantially and have even within a matter of days. Let me give you a good example. I did an experiment that's probably a bit uh, famous by this point, which is that 
I started at a ketogenic level where my LDL was substantially high. It was around 296 milligrams per deciliter on day zero. And seven days later, it had dropped 40 milligrams per deciliter roughly per day down to 83 in seven days. And I did that by going from a ketogenic diet and its ratio and going into a diet that nobody would recommend, which is white bread and lean processed meat. And I was doing that to substantiate the model that I was just describing. So I was going from a fat-based metabolism to a glucose-based metabolism. What is that diet for? Is, does it have a name, uh, that diet? I would call it the prison food diet. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was literally chosen. I, the reason I chose white bread and processed lean meat is nobody would choose it. A lot of times what gets brought forward, and I'm sure you'll hear a lot, are people who advocate for a low-fat, high-carb diet to say, you know, certain things with polyphenols and, and other aspects for which they're good for cardiovascular uh, health as far as how they affect your lipid profile. And I'm here to say, actually, I think a lot of it has to do with what metabolic pathway you're on. So I think that that ends up being very relevant to this larger question. But you're, you're, you're the, what you're seeking out to, to understand, what you're seeking out to better understand is... Why does why do people with low carb and high fat ketogenic diet end up having high lip, high LDL and high cholesterol? And the other thing you're seeking to be, uh, to better understand is does it matter clinically? Right? I mean, is yes. uh, I mean, do we should we really care? Should these people get treatment or so on? Right? These are the two questions that you're trying to better understand? Am I articulating this properly? Yeah, and actually, let me return back because I think I didn't fully answer your question from before, which is that, and let me just to close that topic. What I was saying was, I think that if you are generally in a, a state of metabolic dysregulation, you're coming from a place of poor metabolic health, you're obese, odds are your total and LDL cholesterol will not change that substantially or may even drop, particularly if you have an atherogenic dyslipidemic profile and you're moving to one of higher HDL and lower triglycerides. Conversely, and somewhat unintuitively, if you're someone like myself, and this is where I differentiated from my dad and my sister, I was leaner. I'm arguably, they would, they would concede this. I'm a little more metabolically healthy than they are. I saw that pronounced increase in LDL and total cholesterol. And I think that your patients who would match my profile would as well. You had a recent podcast where you had a guest that was on who seemed to be lean and metabolically healthy and had gone on a ketogenic diet. My prediction is that yes, probably his LDL has gone up. Once, once you finally get the blood test, I'll bet you his LDL has gone up. It did. Substantial. I, follow, I followed up with him. I think you're probably referring to Aaron Goodman, uh, Dr. Aaron Goodman. It, 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 he came in on the episode when I had Ethan uh, Weiss and Kevin Bass, and uh, it did go up a little bit. You're right. I did follow up with him. And, and that's, that's my expectation per, it, this meets so far the model. As the joke goes, all models are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> I think that I think that our lipid energy model is useful and that it does seem to show predictive value in this respect. If somebody comes to me right now and they're lean and they say, I'd like to go on a ketogenic diet. I'm otherwise very healthy. 
but I'm worried about having high cholesterol. Do you think my cholesterol will go up? And my answer will be yes. I think your cholesterol will likely go up if you go keto, given these attributes that you're describing right now. And if that's the concern, then you yeah, no, no, no. I, I am convinced. I mean, I think it's very clear uh, from what you're saying and from my observation when speaking to other people is that the ketogenic diet does elevate the LDL and the cholesterol somehow. What is not clear is what does that mean from clinical standpoint? In other words, are these elevated numbers, do they really pose any clinical risk to these patients? And do these, well, they're not patients yet, do these people need to get medications? And I'm certain this is this crossed your mind at some point because you know you see these numbers, they're high, and, and you worry and you get scared. Um, so I, did, I, you did tell me you did not take medications, you seek the natural way to bring it down. But how are you, like, how are you trying to determine whether these changes in the numbers are clinically important or not? Because ultimately, if they are, patients, people should receive treatment. If they're not, then it's just a number. A hundred percent. So first of all, to answer your question, I don't just think about it often. I think about it daily, if not hourly. This is, this is something you're an engineer. You live on Excel sheets and these graphs and so on. So I'm, yeah, I, I've had a couple of people like you as my patients. It's always fun actually, because I, anytime I get the records, it's so organized. I'm like, I don't need to look at anything. They already have everything graphed for me. Yes. I, well, because we have to, we have to live in that process. We, we find process helps us. If it's good, it, it helps us remain honest because yeah. there's the great term, which is if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Yeah. And oftentimes this is why engineers get frustrated when we find that there's, there's a lot of guesswork involved uh, with something that is considered a fairly serious subject. So yes, per your point earlier, there are really two questions I'm looking to answer. The first one is the interesting one I was just talking about, the mechanistic with the energy model. But if I were to assign points to it, that's like one point value, whereas whether or not this constitutes high risk is worth a million points. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> that's the one we're interested in. It, hey, it could be absolutely true that I could be right about the lipid energy model, but my quote unquote cautious optimism with regard to high LDL in this fat adapted context is flat out wrong. That people who have a high LDL, and that includes myself, are, are developing rapid progression of atherosclerosis. And I can't emphasize that enough. I know you've now followed me on Twitter for quite a bit, and I know you know that I take enormous efforts to emphasize this over and over again. This is a hypothesis, and the case I'm going to lay before you is very nuanced, but that I'm more than comfortable at bringing forward the fact, I would say, that a good 99, 98% of your colleagues of doctors around the world would say, listen, there is just no way to look at high LDL and not conclude that we should assume it's going to be high risk, as prior guest Ethan Weiss would say. That so what, you're all, saying, what you're saying is we don't know. That's what you're saying. Yes, I, I would. My argument is, A, we don't know. B, I can lay out a case for which existing evidence, not just anecdotal evidence in the low-carb community, but existing evidence 
does bring forward to light how much lipid metabolism is relevant to this question on these lipid profiles. That it may be, I think, uh, not good enough to look at a lipoprotein, these, these boats, particularly LDL, to look at them as either disease causing or health promoting, either way. That rather we should look to what impacts both lipid levels and atherosclerosis independently. So I'm sure you've heard discussion of Bradford Hill many times over. That's right, you know, right. the father of epidemiology right. and et cetera. In order to claim A causes B, you need to say that you know for sure that either B doesn't cause A or that to what degree B causes A, you know and can account for. But on top of that, and this part's really important, that you can also account for other things that can cause both. So if there's a C, a D, an E, et cetera, ideally you would have all of those in your sites. And that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is the very thing I was just mentioning before with atherogenic dyslipidemia. If we're looking at populations for which there's this collinearity with these other issues, then we should ideally want to look at those people for which there's an association with metabolic health because disruptions in lipid metabolism that have a downstream result in lipid levels, we would ideally isolate those out and look instead to those people that have high LDL, but an, an excellent lipid metabolism. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, no, I would agree. I think my uh, one, like I'm thinking that all of what I'm hearing is from you and others and so forth is very plausible theories. But what I, what I believe what you're trying to do is to find the conclusive evidence and you're open-minded to the idea that maybe you know, whatever you're trying to do may prove right or wrong, or you just don't know that, but that's why you're trying to study this in a methodical way. So how, how are you doing this? Like, what is the trial or the study that you are trying to do to really, I guess, I don't know, reach a conclusive evidence, uh, a conclusive conclusion, I guess? Yes, of course, you teed me up a very softball, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, I've crowdfunded a study that we're currently in IRB for. And the study is around those people who have the most pronounced version of the triad of not just high LDL, but a likewise high HDL low triglycerides. And I wrote about this phenotype in 2017, and it's now kind of become a bit ubiquitous in the low carb community. It's a lean mass hyper responder. So the cut points are an LDL of 200 or higher an HDL of 80 or higher and triglycerides of 70 or lower. And bear in mind, each of those three that I just mentioned, those three cut points, you're a doctor, you know how rare any one of those all by themselves are to begin with. Hey, I would love for my HDL to be 80, Dave. <laughs> it, is, it is half that, believe me. Oh, no kidding, no kidding. We'll talk after this podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, but, but it's, it's a valid question that Ethan brought up, which is what about those people that don't have, say, an LDL of 150 or 170? What about those people who have an LDL of 400 or 500? It, you are probably familiar with the seminal work of Brown and Goldstein. Uh, almost half a century ago, they joined their labs and they, you know what, actually, if you don't mind, I'm gonna, I happen to have their quote handy. I would actually oh, like to bring up their sure. quote because 
this is this is so relevant that this is they were uh, speaking of clinical duties early in their career as well at the NIH. And this is the quote. And there we saw a patient that would actually determine the scientific course of the rest of our lives. This is Dr. Brown speaking. And this patient, and this is a bit heartbreaking, but the patient was a little girl with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. She had a total cholesterol of 850, an LDL of 783. And, and this is, again, this is tough, but she had an angina and xanthomas at age three, at age three. Yeah. And she had her first heart attack at age six. Um, and this is the quote from Dr. Goldstein. This little girl had only an elevated LDL. She had no high blood pressure. She had no diabetes. She didn't smoke. She didn't have a type A personality. Her only risk factor for having a heart attack at age six was this high level of LDL. So it's one of the best examples of a disease where we really know the cause and the cause of the disease in this little girl is an increased level of her LDL. Of LDL. So, so let me really drive this home because this also ties into an important point that Kevin made earlier, which is this, the kind of synergistic consideration, the combinatorial aspect. Could you have an LDL that's 500, 600, et cetera, even if you had low risk factors, well, per that quote and per where the lipid hypothesis stands, no, that's, that's considered very concerning. As you know, the guidelines say at 190, at 190, you should have uh, the highest tolerated dose statin with no other risk factor considerations whatsoever. And so it well could be that these lean mass hyperresponders that are at substantially high risk, and I don't say that ironically, I really want to know. And that's why we're doing the study. If there's a number of people who are going to be refusing treatment or not going to be taking steps to lower their LDL, at a minimum, we'd like to say, hey, can we at least get you in for a CT angiogram at yeah. day zero? So let's go and, over the study. Let's, let's describe okay. how the study is. Um, like you're going to get take these patients who are high LDL, yes. low carbs, uh, no other risk factors for cardiac disease? Correct. And as you know, because we're an IRB, we can't get to the specifics, but I can say that they're going to be extraordinarily low risk for cardiovascular disease, save the high LDL. And then what are you going to do? Because I did see actually one of your YouTube videos describing the study. So whatever you are feeling comfortable to share with the public that you've shared on your website or on YouTube, that's really all what we're asking. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to get CT angiograms. CT angiograms are great because it actually gives a very high resolution of the geography of your cardiovascular system. You can identify a plaque volume. Typically you, you isolate and identify particular areas of plaque. And then it's, it's longitudinal data, which is to say it's at multiple points in time. We'll get a scan at day zero, and then we'll get another scan about a year later per patient. So over a period of time, we're recruiting, scanning, and then a year later, those same people were going to be getting a follow-up scan. And in that follow-up scan, we'll be able to do comparisons of plaque volume. Now, again, the goalpost is firmly planted. And what I just mentioned with Brown and Goldstein and, and the existing lipid hypothesis, some, someone like Ethan Weiss, a good doctor like Ethan Weiss, they're going to see an LDL of 400, 500. It's going to be 100% understandable 
why they would consider that to be high risk, given the expectation is they are rapidly developing plaque right now. It's, right. it's happening at a high rate. And that's, that's why for a lot of people, as much as I love blood work, and as much as you can take comfort in blood work, like if you have low inflammatory markers and so forth, nothing beats the physical presence of disease. So it, whether you're in this study or not, I'm definitely a fan of looking at uh, CIMTs, uh, CACs, but really CT angiograms are great because they capture both calcification and uh, soft plaque. And, and that, that way you can get it. You do that in the beginning and then how often? And then, yeah, and then about a year later. So we'll have a year comparison, which might not sound like a lot of time, in fact, when we first were setting up this study, I advertised it as being a five-year, like five years between. Now, since consulting with experts in the field, especially some of the highest luminaries in the field, no, actually, one year should be plenty of time given the effect size. As with that little girl that I mentioned earlier, for sure, if you had, if you had her in for a CT angiogram at any point in time and scanned her again a year later, you would have seen a very rapid progression of atherosclerosis. And you're looking at uh, atherosclerosis on the CT angiogram uh, at the one-year mark. Uh, and are you looking also at clinical endpoints? Uh, I don't know, God forbid, blood pressure, stroke, like other clinical endpoints, because sometimes... I know it's, it's. I don't know. I mean, maybe I wonder if some of the clinical things might occur. Well, I, there's definitely a lot of different things we're capturing that I can't get into too many specifics, but all of them revolve around, of course, uh, disease considerations. The things like measuring events, or for that matter, baseline cardiovascular plaque is already going to have some issues. In that, for example, if you're already coming from a challenging state, many people, for, exa for example, who started on a ketogenic diet may have already come from a lifestyle for which they already developed a lot of calcification or plaque or so forth. So it's hard to know if you don't already have a baseline. And therefore, that's why the longitudinal data is much more important. Well, but, but one of the things, Dave, that I was, as I'm listening to you, I, I wonder, and I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure you've thought about it, but I'm curious what, what you think is that you're going to take specific patient population or a specific cohort that they don't want to get treated anyway. I mean, these are the patients, which I totally agree. There are some patients out there who will have high LDL, low carb, high fat diet that may decline treatment with a statin anyway. And you're looking at this cohort of patients and you're going to follow longitudinally what happens on the CT angiogram. And one of the confounders maybe would be that, um, these patients are going to be highly selected anyway. They are the ones with the good metabolic rate. They are the ones with, you know, good health overall that they don't really feel that they need any treatment to start with. And they feel they are okay waiting and seeing how things happen. While if you take uh, an example, somebody with few risk factors and so on, they may say, no, no, I'm going to get treatment. So it is possible that your patient population that you're including could be highly selected anyway, because these are the patients that already feel comfortable not receiving treatment. Have you thought about that? Oh, 100%. I mean, listen, there's, there's, plenty of, there's plenty of discussion to be had as to what you could do with somebody who is born with homozygous FH, or which you could go to lean mass hyperresponders and say, wait, 
they're not developing plaque if it turned out that way. They're not developing plaque at a high rate. What are lean mass responders doing right that this little girl with homozygous FH isn't, right? So as soon as you would know that there's that problem, what steps could you take if indeed the major contributor to atherosclerosis for the person who has homozygous FH is strictly LDL and doesn't have to do with other aspects of the, the disease. So that the high selectivity you're talking about, the uh, potential healthy user bias, possibly in favor of other aspects are something that we're more than comfortable with because all of these things, if, if I could, I would be getting you know blue ribbon population for which they're doing everything right as possible because I would expect that you couldn't, you could run the same experiment with say smokers, right? Three pack a day smokers. Let me ask it to you this way. Do you think I could get the, the healthiest people in the world to do if they started a three pack a day uh, smoking habit that they would be able to dodge getting a higher development of atherosclerosis as long as they did everything else right? What do you think? I don't know. I think that the smoking by itself could cause a lot of problems. Right. And th again, that's why the corollary with homozygous FH is that's so powerful. It's a good point. Yeah. So, so in that respect, I mean, this is, this is why I think it's important to emphasize this small magnitude, big magnitude question. Yeah. Because you as a clinician, if I'm a patient of yours and I come in and I'm like, Hey, I've read some research that having two bottles of wine a day is is bad for my health, right? I have a bottle of wine a week. Do you think that that's bad for my health? To which it would be understandable as a clinician, you would say, well, unfortunately at those lower ranges, it gets a lot more debatable yeah. as to whether it's, it's a good or bad thing. And I'm not even sure if it's that bad of a thing at that range, but I do at least know that it's not a big magnitude question because the big magnitude questions are easy to detect. The small magnitude questions are hard to detect. So in short, do we at least see high progression of atherosclerosis comparable to somebody who has FH? If the answer to that question is yes, then guess what? A lot of the low-carb community needs to consider making a serious change, especially those people yeah. who, are, who are doing it. If on the other hand, if it's a low rate of atherosclerosis that may be comparable to a healthy population, like if you, if you, if I was your patient and you knew I was in the lowest risk third, I know how clinicians are. I would be the same way. I would go, okay, well, I, I'm really only going to argue with you about the habits I know that puts you at a high risk. And it doesn't seem like this is one of those. Yeah. How many patients do you think you'll be able to uh, accrue to this trial that answer that would hopefully answer the question at hand? We're shooting to recruit a hundred. Of course, there'll be some amount of drop-off, but overall, we're pretty confident we'll be able to recruit a hundred. And if a patient is listening to the show and want to be part of it, I know the trial is not open, it's under IRB and so on, but what's, what resource would you direct them to learn more about the study that hopefully will open maybe in the next within the next six months? I think it's probably fair to say. Maybe even by the time you launch this podcast. We'll oh, I see. like that. But where, where should they go? Like your website? You, like how do they find information? Yeah, so they can go to citizensciencefoundation.org. Citizensciencefoundation.org. That's definitely the central point. That's the uh, public charity we have that's running the study. Um, but, you know, on top of thank you again for letting me plug it. But on top of that, listen, Chatty, I, we've kind of talked about this before. If you took the whole of the population of those who have high LDL 
and you divided them into three categories. The first category are those who have a high LDL from some version of lipid metabolism dysregulation associated with genetics. And then the second category are those people who have high LDL due to some lipid metabolism dysregulation from environment or diet or some uh, onset of disease, right? Then you have this third category that gets very little attention, but should, which is which are those people at high LDL and do not have a, a dysfunction of lipid metabolism from either genetics or from some onset of disease. Those are the people we should be focusing on. We should be putting a lot of attention on just how much lipid metabolism could help explain some to a large proportion of this association of risk and how relevant that is, especially if the ketogenic community is growing. If this, if this diet is getting more popular, if, if there are people like your prior guest who are seeing this high LDL, I, I would argue that we should be curious and we should want to study it. No, no, I agree. And I like the fact that you're studying it. And I really applaud the fact that you're not really making recommendations. I mean, you're not a physician, so you're not really making, you're just saying, you know what, I would like to study this and I'm willing to, to work to, to build this. So, so help me. And, you know, we just only have a few minutes and, and we'll conclude, but um, I, I noticed on social media, Dave, that there are some sometimes argument back and forth between you and some of the physicians, some of the cardiologists and respectful dialogue. I mean, I admit, I, I applaud you for being always uh, respectful and, uh, and, and taking the heat nicely when there is, but what, what, where's the controversy? Just, just help us understand what, where's the contention coming from? What are the issues? Where are the points of disagreement, I guess, between you and cardiologists or physicians that generate all of this argument and back and forth on social media and muting and blocking and punching and all that good stuff? I like, I usually, wa I usually eat popcorn and watch the, you know, watch the fights, but I'm trying to understand why there are fights. What are the issues? Well, first and foremost, I have to say that I know many people who think I am absolutely wrong especially who are doctors and, and researchers, I think that they have the best intentions. I really do. I think that they mean to do right by their patients. And they see even, even my expression of there being a cautious optimism in this particular context, no matter how much I'm emphasizing, this is a hypothesis and so forth, that they consider that information alone as just too dangerous to bring forward. And so I, I, I want to do the best that I can to keep that consideration in play. That said, that with that being a crux of the argument, a lot of times I push forward saying, okay, well then with that being said, how much can we drill in deeper and get to this greater specificity? How much can we try to look to existing data, even before we get this prospective cohort data that we're going to be getting? How much can we look backward at the data that we already have? Because there are already longitudinal data sets and this is a common thing that I bring up very often. Uh, Framingham, Copenhagen, UK Biobank, these all have longitudinal data sets. And, and Chatty, I'll be upfront right now that I think, and I, I make public hypotheses like this all the time that are very falsifiable. I think if you look to those existing populations, even if it's rare to find untreated high LDL alongside high HDL and low triglycerides, even if they're not on a ketogenic diet, I think that it's going to be associated with low cardiovascular disease risk and really um, lower all-cause mortality. 
that's something we can look at right now. If, if I had access, I would, I would be looking at that. I'm partnering with some researchers that it's a process, as you know, to get access to these data sets and to run these queries. But I think in time, that's, that's something that we'll see. And I think that that's, again, very relevant to this, this key question at hand. We should want to have as much data as we can to help answer that. But, but is the biggest disagreement between you and the medical community is that the medical community says, we don't need this study. If you have a high LDL, our recommendations are to receive treatment. And what you're saying is, if we have high LDL in that context of the high, you know, in the keto and so on, we don't know if you need statin. And I worry about the statin side effects. I'm, I, I want to try to distill down the actual points of disagreement because I'm still hoping that one day I'm going to have you and Ethan together on the same podcast. And I want to make sure what are the top three points of disagreements that you both have. Hopefully, Ethan is listening. He's gotten too much plugs on this show. I don't know. He needs to pay for this. Yes. Well, of course, I would. I, I've chatted with Ethan plenty of times in private. I have a lot of respect for Ethan, and I appreciate the time he's taken to have these discussions with me. On top of that, he's a scientist around metabolism. So I think this these are questions that are of interest to him. But yes, if I, if I had to distill it down, for one, there's a there's a pushback on even even suggesting it's questionable, even suggesting it's something. It, one thing I'm I'm definitely quite vocal about is that the question has already been answered. I don't think the question has already been answered, and I credit Ethan for saying the question hasn't been answered, even if he feels there's a default, uh, as he described it, that we should default to assuming that it's bad. He I think he described it in a prior podcast as sort of like a bomb in the basement. You hope that <laughs> you hope that it doesn't go off, uh, but but why you know risk it? And again, and with emphasis, he could be right. I don't. I am very careful. Okay, and so really, really, the point of disagreement is, uh, you know, he thinks it's probably not a question that needs to be studied because we know the answer, and you think we need to study to don't know the answer, right? I mean. I, I want great folks like Ethan to be proactively making it happen now. So it, here's my frustration, Chatty, and I'll, I'll just summarize it like this. Again, I've been knocking on the doors for five, six years. I first tried to get people who I thought in the field of lipidology to be interested enough to study it and to partner with them to recruit, because of course, a lot of these lean mass hyperresponders, I and mean, literally we have a group of 7,000 uh, for the uh, for lean mass hyperresponders, I could easily line them up with the population for the study, the one that we've crowdsourced for. And that's what I initially tried to do about three and a half to four years ago in the beginning, before I eventually gave up and said, screw it, we're just going to go ahead and, and crowdsource this study ourselves. I, I frankly feel very frustrated that that's what it's taken and that we still have yet to have even sister studies that have propped up from any other teams that aren't interested enough to study this population in isolation. And that is a place where I think uh, Ethan and myself and really a whole lot of other people might have a disagreement as to what level of urgency there should be for us to make this happen. I, I would want them all to be motivated to look and try to get, you know, try to assess the level of genuine risk that there is. Well, I, I hope uh, your study really answers that question. I Look, I mean, I, I compliment you on trying to 
answer that methodically with uh, a study, with a question, and you're with a hypothesis, and you're trying to go after it. I oftentimes struggle with when folks make uh, statements that are not supported by evidence. You acknowledge that we don't know for sure, but we're going to study it, and hopefully we come to the answer. And and you're open-minded to the fact that the answer could be either way, right? I mean, you're you're not really, you know, I mean, in fact, if you knew the answer, you wouldn't do the study. And look, I mean, honestly, I think in the medical community, I would say my own uh, colleagues and physicians and so on, oftentimes one of the reason, one of the most important reasons studies don't always um, accrue or enroll or take place is because we assume we know the answer. We We have our preconceived notions and preconceived beliefs that dictate actually our behavior and we get uncomfortable when we are challenged and we're asked well wait a minute here do you are you really sure and we say well i know i know i know and and that so i you know hats off to you uh, dave i i think um, you're going around this the right way and while people may disagree with you uh you're saying okay we'll, we'll find the answers in the next couple of years yes and I, I'm thankful for the low-carb community for stepping up. I'm thankful for everybody outside the low-carb community who've become interested in this study and are likewise looking forward to it coming. And, and I should emphasize, the study does have limitations as well. It would be more ideal if it, if it were possible for us to have a, uh, a control group, for example. It'd be better if we could have a larger population. That said, there's really quite a lot that will yeah. come given the effect size, given just how high the LDL is, and given that we're getting CT angiograms, I do think that there'll be a lot of very powerful data that comes out of this. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's gonna be very useful. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking time. I really, I, I've learned a lot from you. I really appreciate it. I, I always, I've become a little bit selfish in my old age with the podcast where I really try to get topics where I get to learn a little bit. <laughs> I need to learn more. Before I, before I let you go, final thoughts, you get the last, you get the last word. Well, of course, the one thing that I do want to reemphasize is unfortunately in this space, as you know, things often get turned into a false dichotomy. And the one thing that I hope doesn't happen, but happens often, is people just sort of distill down this kind of nuanced case I'm making into, hey, Dave is one of these people who thinks high LDL is not a problem. I hope I've done a decent job of laying out a much broader- I, I did not think that you don't think it's a problem at all. I mean, if folks are listening in, intently, they would not think, hopefully they don't get that message. Right, and, and that's kind of the key is, I just, I'm, I'm, you know this about me. I'm a big fan of cordial discussion, of respectful debate, of talking as one colleague would to another about such an important topic and working through the science and the reasoning and coming to the best conclusion that helps us get to the truth. At the end of the day, that's what we've all got to want is to get to the truth. So yes, that's, if there's any closing thought, it's that I'll, I'll be interested in revisiting this, perhaps with you again, in a couple of years and see where we're at. Well, we're really going to revisit that before then, because you know I'm going to get like uh, I'm going to get you and Ethan. Uh, I'll send you like boxing gloves and everything. <laughs> well, uh, Dave Feldman, thank you for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me, Chad.
Okay, folks, thanks for listening. I appreciate you tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered and to listening to this podcast. I also appreciate your support. Don't forget to watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Make sure that you hit the subscribe and the like button. Also, let me know what you think of the podcast episodes, and you could do that by emailing me uh, through my website, www.chadinabhan.com or to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Uh, I appreciate your support. And by the way, if you are a loyal listener to this podcast, you need to direct message me on Twitter so you could get our Healthcare Unfiltered branded t-shirts. I promise you that this will be sent to you to your address. You can choose gray or black and it is free of charge. Before I let you go, I'm going to actually leave you with a saying by Joseph Joubert, who is a French writer, and it is on debates, because we do foster debates here. And here's what Joseph said once. It is better to debate a question without settling it than to settle a question without debating it. Until next time, take care.